Welcome to the teaching ministry of Rev. Daryl Baker, pastor of Christian Faith Fellowship. Pastor Baker is fulfilling the call of God on his life to preach the Word of God without compromise. Raising up disciples who through faith in God will have a powerful impact on our world. May you be blessed through the message that Pastor Baker has to share with you today. May God's very best be yours. Go with me to Luke chapter 1. So we are going to cover, I'm going to cover today's chapter as well. We're going to cover the first four chapters of the book of Luke. And believe me, we're going to be here probably for about six, seven hours to do that. No, I'm joking. It'd take that long if you covered every little bit of it. But I'm going to highlight some key things about the life of Jesus and things that would relate to me and you, how that affects our life, how we can walk in the light of how that touches our life as well. So if you're ready, we're going to jump right into it. Luke chapter 1, we're going to begin with the first verse, read into a little bit of the birth of Jesus, and then I'm going to point out some key things to you about this life of Jesus. How many are glad for Jesus today? Luke chapter 1, verse 1, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. Notice that statement. Those things which have been fulfilled among us. What did Jesus come to do? Fulfill the Father's plan. Fulfill what God had to do for us. How many know he did that? Verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to us, it seemed, verse 3, good to me also, Luke said, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theopolis, that you may know the certainty, listen to that phrase, verse 4, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. God doesn't want us to just kind of have a sort of an idea about what Jesus did for us. He wants to be certain, He wants us to be certain about it. Now, this excellent Theopolis, really nobody knows who he was. He's really not the key here. The key is what is being talked about, and that's about the life of Jesus. He was some form, most believe, some form of government official or government ruler because of the statement, excellent, Theopolis. That word was only used in the Bible for those that were in you know, specific governing positions, etc. But the whole point is, verse 4, his key phrase here out of these four verses is, he wants you to know the certainty of those things which you were instructed about the life of Jesus. He wants you to be absolutely, without a doubt, convinced and sold out in your heart about what Jesus did and walk in the light of it. Amen? Amen. So we begin in chapter 1, verse 5 now, talking about what is going to come before the birth of Jesus. What has to come before Jesus comes? John does. John's going to prepare the way, right? So we know his relative, clearly John, is going to be the one that's going to prepare a way for him. Verse 5, we start learning about this birth of John. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias. Now priests in those days served still in the temple because the New Testament hasn't been started yet. Jesus hasn't come. So they're going to the actual temple and they're serving in their time that they were required to go there. They serve in the inner first part of that first court of the inner temple. Not in the Holy of Holies on a consistent basis, but in that inner part of that first uh, part of the temple. So this is what Zacharias is doing. He's a certain priest, Zacharias, of the division of Abijah. His wife's name 
was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Verse 6. I want you to notice this in verse 6. We're going to point out some key things about their life here to encourage you and to also help you understand about faith. Watch this. They were both righteous before God. Say that with me. They were both righteous before God. What's that mean? They did what was right. These were not people living sinful lives. These were people that were truly living right in the sight of God. Again, they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of of the Lord. Underline this, blameless. In the eyes of God, blameless. So in essence, when you look at the context of Zacharias and Elizabeth's life, could you find fault with, with their life as far as how they were living? No. So these people in the eyes of God, based on the old covenant, were doing all that they were required to do, all they were supposed to do to honor God through the old covenant. In essence, what we would say today is they were people who walk with God. So they're clearly walking with God. They're not somebody who is in rebellion. They're not somebody who is trying in any way go against God. They're doing exactly what God has asked of them to do. Notice verse 7, but they had no child. Now listen, this is significant because a lot of times things don't always come to pass in our timing. Things of what we're believing God for don't always happen in our timing. Now don't take that to mean that every promise of God is based on what he says. But this is significant because this is literally God preparing a way for Jesus. This birth of John has to come at a timely uh, you know, a specific timely uh, time frame. It can't just happen whenever. And God needed somebody special to birth this boy through. And so sometimes things are happening in ways that we don't understand. But you know what? God's still taking care of them. It just means they're not getting everything the way they necessarily may have wanted to happen. Because to not have a child by that time in your old age was considered that you were probably somebody who had something that was not right with God. And therefore, they kind of look at you, obviously, as somebody who is not looked upon very high in society. But that wasn't the case with this couple. So, verse 7, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So, number one, I want you to remember this. They were blameless before God, totally blameless, but yet still didn't have a child. How many are still believing for things that you know God wants in your life that hasn't come to pass yet? Don't think that all of a sudden, because it hasn't come to pass yet, there must be something wrong with me. There might be. There might be something you might need to correct. But if you know you're doing what you're supposed to do in the sight of God, walking with God, listen, don't look to God as like he's the problem. Or even in this essence, then blame yourself and think there must be something wrong with me. If I've sought out from the Lord answers to know for sure that I'm not doing anything that would hinder what God wants in my life, and I know I'm not, then you know what you do? You keep obeying God. Here's what I love about Elizabeth and what I love about Zacharias. They kept obeying God. Even though they didn't have a child, they clearly wanted one. You're going to find out they'd been praying for one because Gabriel's going to tell them your prayer's been heard. So realize this. Even though they wanted a child, even though they'd been praying, right, and had really lived a good life from the perspective of the Scriptures and it hadn't come to pass, here's what's important. They didn't quit. I said they didn't quit. If If you miss Wednesday night, you need to go back and get Wednesday night's message, man. Because that was awesome. God desires loyalty because he wants what? Us to know him. And that takes a commitment. That takes a no-quit attitude. I know at leadership conference this week, which I don't get to go because we do the Polar Express with our pastor, uh, during the leadership conference this week, during one of the meetings, pastor had some ministers that were 40-plus years in the ministry stand up and give a golden nugget of what what has sustained you for 40-plus years in ministry, right? 
And, you know, every single person kind of had their own little thing that they stated, of course, that was significant that helped them. But the moment he said that, how many know who Dr. Lester Sumrall was? One of our dads, our pastor's spiritual dads. Dr. Lester Sumrall didn't change uh, cities. He changed nations. This was an incredible man of God. I'll never forget it. Dr. Lester Sumrall was asked multiple times by ministers, what is it that has caused you to be a success in ministry? Ready for his answer? Yeah. He would shout it. I'm not going to shout it at you. Ready for his answer? Yeah. I didn't quit. Yes, I didn't quit. See, guess what Zacharias and Elizabeth, Elizabeth didn't do? They didn't quit God. Just because their uh, you know, hopeful belief of having a child didn't come to pass when they wanted it to, guess what? They didn't stop serving God. You know how many people start blaming God for things again that don't go their way and they stop serving God? Well, I guess if God really was who he said he was, he'd already brought this to pass, changed this, done this, done that, whatever. Now listen, man, you got to understand there's other things that can affect what goes on in the world. And you got to know this as a child of God. I got to know that if I don't quit and I stay in faith, guess what? My God's coming through. Like a better amen. Amen. Tell your neighbor, he's already preaching better than your amen in this morning. So you got to realize this. A lot of people, man, they get down on God because stuff don't happen when they want it to. Stuff doesn't come to pass when they want it to. In this case, John's birth was instrumental in preparing the way for Jesus. It therefore was very timely in the time frame in which he was born. So God's really using them in a way they didn't realize. Think about that. He's using them by actually holding up the birth of this child because he's got to have John come come at a certain time. So in essence, even as they're obeying God, God's already using them without them realizing it because their faithfulness is going to allow this to happen. Without their faithfulness, you know, John doesn't get birthed and therefore there is nobody to prepare the way for the Lord. So we go on down through here. The angel Gabriel clearly appears to Zacharias. He begins to talk about this very miracle child. Zacharias is in the temple. He's in the first inner court. He's in there obviously doing what they did, not only to pray and honor, uh, offer uh, prayers for the people, but taking care of the table of showbread, the light, the, the candle stands, all that stuff that's there. But in the midst of that, guess what happens? An angel appears. Amen. I'm going to tell you what, when Gabriel shows up in a room, it's not like, I wonder who this guy is. <laughs> this is this is the angel Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Yeah. When he shows up, you're aware this is not an this is not a usual event. Right. Which obviously he realizes because when the angel appeared to him, verse 13, chapter 1, the angel said, Do not be what? Afraid, Zacharias, for your notice this prayer is heard. Your prayer is heard. Do not be afraid. Why? Because verse 12, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. So clearly this angel Gabriel shows up. Gabriel, Gabriel, if you don't know, was a messenger, is a, I should say, still is, a messenger angel. He, he is the one who will deliver messages directly for God. So he is bringing a message to Zacharias. What is that message? You're going to have a child. You're going to have a boy. You're going to name him John. He even tells him what to name him, which was totally odd for that day. Because how many of you know in their day, you normally named a child after a family member? They had nobody in their family named John. So he tells him, you're going to name him John. Now, guess what Zacharias says? I'm so convinced of that. And I'm so excited. Praise God. I'm just going to go tell everybody what God has told me is going to happen. I'm so excited. Can't wait to go tell everybody about the good news. Is that what he said? No. no I'm going to show you something here really significant today. We're going to compare Zacharias' response to Gabriel's message as opposed to Mary's 
message from Gabriel about the birth of Jesus. They both respond totally differently. And it's critical for us to understand about how faith works. So he tells them that they're going to have this son. They're going to have this child. Notice in verse 18, we see here Zacharias' response to this news from Gabriel. Verse 18, you with me? Zacharias said to the angel, underline this please, how shall I know this? How shall I know this? Now, that's kind of blind to us in the English language. And again, the context of the New Testament was written in Greek, Old Testament, in, in Hebrew. Notice the rest of this phrase, for I am what? I am what? An old man and my wife is what? Now, that phrase right there will help you understand the very first part of what he actually said to that angel. When he said, how shall I know this? Underline that. How shall I know this? Why did he ask that question? Notice the next phrase. I'm an old man. And my wife is well advanced in years, unable to have children. What was Zacharias focused on? The natural. What he could see in the natural circumstances of life. And therefore, his focus certainly wasn't on what God said. God had just spoken to him. Gabriel didn't speak to him. Gabriel said, I am a messenger angel. Gabriel doesn't come up with his own messages. Who's talking to Zacharias here? God is. God's just sending a messenger with the word. So when Zacharias, uh, excuse me, when Gabriel spoke to Zacharias and said, you and Elizabeth are going to have a son, who really said that to him? That's the same as God standing there right there in his presence saying, guess what, Zach? You and Elizabeth are going to have a boy, right? Same thing. So he responds with this phrase, how shall I know this? In the Greek language, it actually says it this way. You ready? I need to see proof. I need to see proof. So when he makes this statement, how shall I know this? In the Greek language, he states it this way in the Greek. I need to see proof this is true. You're going to have to prove to me that somehow you have to show me something I can see proof of that that's going to happen because I'm old, my wife is old, and unable to have children. So this is a key to faith because you base your faith not on what you see. You don't base your faith, don't get, don't get mad at me, don't throw nothing. Don't base your faith on some little Facebook post. Hey, if you post this three times today, God will bless you. Quit, you, quit falling for all this stuff. God gave you promise in his word. I can't find a place in the New Testament where Jesus went along and told people, now listen, if you'll just go post this, you know, four or five times, praise God today, this will work for you. No, he said, you believe God's word. You act upon that word. You speak that word. It'll come to pass. I have a question. This is so simple. How does faith work? Really easy. How'd you get born again? You believed in your heart. What? What'd you believe in your heart? More specifically, what'd you believe in your heart? You believe what God said. Somebody told you about Jesus dying for you. And when they told you that, what were you hearing? The gospel. Where's that come from? God. So you had to hear what God had to say about your life. Correct? You had to get a word from God. You can't, get, you can't get born again by not hearing what God says about it. Because there's no belief in God without knowing what did he say. I can't believe something Matt tells me or something Mike tells me or something, you know, Joshua tells me or something anybody else tells me. Obviously, I can't believe their word unless I know what they said. First of all, I got to know what they said. I don't know. I mean, you know, you get secondhand information a lot of times from people. Well, you can't believe that unless you know they said it. Which, by the way, you shouldn't be believing things other people tell you about other people unless you know they said it. Thank you for all your men's about that. 
So realize this. He is not believing in the word from God because an angel has spoken to him and said, you're going to have a boy. He didn't say it might work. No, no. You listening? God is so specific. God's going to intervene in a person's life here in this setting of Zacharias that he's going to alter Zacharias physically. This rarely happens. But God has to have the birth of his son to bring salvation to people. And to do that, he's got to prepare the way. John's got to prepare the way. How many know you're supposed to be doing that now? How many know Jesus is coming back? What's the church supposed to be doing? Preparing the people for the return of Jesus. So understand that he's got to have the birth of this son. He's going to actually now intervene in Zacharias' life that I wished he would do a lot of times for us to be able to see to it. He doesn't hinder what his plan is here. So let me help you. John here doesn't get birth because of Zacharias' faith. John doesn't get birth because of Elizabeth's faith. John here gets birth for one reason. God's got to have him. And God's going to bring him into manifestation so that he can prepare the way of the Lord. Amen? So what is it again Zacharias is doing? He's focused on the natural. He's not believing what God told him. He's simply looking at the natural circumstances. And because of that, God's going to have to deal with that through this angel. So this is why the response, verse 19. The angel answered and said to him, I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. He should have been rejoicing. He should have been excited. He should have been shouting, praising God. Verse 20, but behold, notice this, you will be mute, underline it. See, I wish God would do this in a lot of our lives. Because you don't realize how many times. You take a promise from God, you get it in your heart, you speak it with your mouth, you act on it, it'll work. I tell you this all the time. Faith is a spiritual law. Not like law you got to obey. A law that works. The law of gravity works. If you don't believe the law of gravity works, you gather with me after service. We'll take you up on the roof of the building. We'll all jump off. I won't. We'll watch you jump off one at a time. And we'll see if gravity still works. It always works. Guess what faith does? I said, guess what faith does? Do you know how many people have been denied walking by faith? Here's why. Because they'll say this. I hear it all the time. Well, I know so-and-so. They believe God didn't work for them. So one of two things is true. Either faith doesn't work all the time, therefore it's not a spiritual law, therefore God, God is wishy-washy, no. or somehow they weren't walking by faith. You know how many people believe they are walking by faith? And they're not. How do you walk by faith again? Salvation again. So back to what I was talking about. How'd you get born again? Hope you're listening. How'd you get born again? You heard God's word. Somebody told you the good news about what Jesus did. What do you got to do to see that change you supernaturally on the inside? Got to believe it in your heart. Then you got to do what? Speak it with your mouth. Act upon it, calling upon him as your Lord. And a miracle happens. I said a miracle happens. I said a miracle happens. How many have done this in your life? Have you done that, a miracle happened. A brand new spirit got birth within you instantaneously. And if it happened, you know there's been a change. You know there's something different about you on the inside. Well, guess what? This is key to understanding again how faith works. And Zacharias here not believing what God spoke to him. Not Gabriel. What God spoke through Gabriel obviously would hinder John's birth. Imagine him coming out of that temple not having the ability to have his mouth shut up. What's he going to say? Well, you know, this angel appeared. He said that we're going to have a kid, but I don't know. He didn't give me any proof. Now, the moment he said that, guess what? John ain't going to be born. Because he's not in faith here. 
So he's going to hinder God's ability to work in his life. I wish Christians would get a hold of this. In the Old Testament, no, no different than the New, how many know the children of Israel could have entered into their promise? Yes. You know what the Bible says? They hindered God. Yes. You know what you can do with your life? Hinder God. Yes. How did they hinder God? Somebody help me preach today. How did they hinder God? They moaned. They complained. God did miracle after miracle after miracle for them. And all they did is moan and complain against God. They didn't believe what he said. He brings them to the promised land. He said, it's yours. Walk in. I'm going to drive out your enemies before you. What did they say? Can't do it. Can't do it. So you know what John would have been saying? This ain't going to happen. I got no proof. I know he said it, but come on. This can't happen. I'm old. Look at my age. Look at Elizabeth. Look at her. Seriously. You think we're going to have a kid? I mean, I know he said it, but I just don't see it happening. Guess what he would have done? Come on. Guess what he would have done? He would have hindered God's plan. You know how many times we hinder God's plan through our words? Does anybody believe the Bible here? Death and life's in the power of the tongue. You're speaking words of death over your life or you're speaking words of life over your life? James 3. Come on, man. Your words are like a bridle on a horse's mouth, man. You're going to direct your life wherever you go, like a rudder on a ship. We went and saw the Titanic, you know, museum when we were in Pigeon Forge. Man, that thing was huge. Massive, 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 massive. And even though the rudders in size comparison to most were pretty big, compared to that ship, very small. But what determined where that iceberg went? Honestly, it wasn't the rudder. What was it? It was the pilot behind it. Guess what this is in your mouth, this little tongue the Bible says. It's a rudder. Guess what it's going to do? It's going to determine the outcome of your life. But it's not the tongue that's going to do that. What's going to determine that? The pilot behind it. You're the pilot behind your tongue. So realize this is true of, of, of uh, Zacharias. So again, look at verse 20. You still here? Yeah. Behold, Gabriel said, you will be mute. You're not going to be able to speak. And, and, and notice that you'll not be able to speak until the day that these things take place. Listen, underline it, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. So God's saying, I got to have this come to pass. And therefore, even though you don't believe it, I'm still going to see that it comes to pass because I've spoken it. How many believe what God speaks comes to pass? So you got to realize again, you don't need proof to see God's results in relationship to the natural. You just need his word and you just need to believe his word and then do what? Speak his word. So very clearly, now we see a difference in how he handled it as opposed to how Mary did. Chapter 1, verse 26. So let's go see the example of what happened with Mary. Verse 26, in the sixth month, that same angel, same angel Gabriel, six months after, uh, obviously, he had come and appeared to uh, uh, context uh, Zacharias. So six months, Gabriel comes by God, sent to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Virgin's name, of course, Mary. Having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice what? Now, i got to touch on this all the time because Catholics, you know, yeah, she's highly favored above everybody else. Like she's special or, or better than everybody else. No. Guess what? Elijah was a man of God who did incredible things. But the Bible says he was a man just like me and you. Right. What does it mean highly favored? Well, she's highly blessed because she's going to get to birth the Messiah. Right. And therefore, that's a true blessing. Yes. I said that was a true blessing. Yes. Rejoice, highly favored one, because notice this, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled as well at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. 
The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, just like he had done to Zacharias, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. If you don't know, the name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah is salvation. He is our salvation or our deliverer. So his name will be Jesus. 32, he will be great. He will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Now, if you're curious about that, David uh, was given a promise by God that there would always be somebody seated on his throne or place of authority. If you go back to the lineage of Jesus through Joseph, David was in that lineage. Jesus is a fulfillment of that promise to David. There is no other kings than Jesus. But he is a fulfillment of that in relationship to the promise to David. 33, he will reign. Jesus will reign over the house of Jacob forever. That just means Israel, the, the children of God. He will reign over the children of God forever. And of his kingdom, there will be what? No. Underline that. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. There'll be no end of his dominion established once again on the earth. They'll never be able to take it from us in the context of that phrase, the kingdom of heaven is at hand again. Verse four, uh, 34, Mary said to the angel, underline this please, how can this be? Yep. Now you might think that sounds similar to how shall I know this, but it's not. It is not. She is a, uh, obviously clearly somebody chosen specifically by God who's a virgin, who's serving God. Otherwise God could not use her. And she's betrothed to a man to be married. That means she's never laid with a man ever before. So in her mind, she's just thinking naturally, right? From this perspective of, okay, I'm, you know, I'm understanding that what you're saying to me. But my point is, how is this going to happen? Now, why would she ask that question, ladies? Let me explain. If you're a holy woman, what are you thinking? You're thinking, I'm not married. I can't disobey God. And go sleep with a man because guess what? That would be a, a context of fornication to God would be out of line with his will. And I'm not going to violate God's will. So how can this be? How's this going to happen? So she wasn't saying, I need to see proof. You listening? She's not saying, I need to see proof. She's just saying, would you explain to me how this is going to happen? So he goes on and tells her, notice this again, verse 34. How can this be since I don't know a man? 35, the angel answered. And he said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who is called barren. 37, for with God, this is a powerful verse. You should never forget it. Underline it, highlight it, circled in your Bible. For with God, what? Nothing. Tell me out loud, please. Tell me out loud, nothing will be impossible. What's impossible to you? Nothing with God involved. If you've got a promise from God, nothing's impossible. 38, Mary said, behold, what? What did she say? What did she say? Well, you need to show me proof. Did she say that? No, behold, the maidservant of the Lord, simply meaning what? I'm a volunteer servant of yours. I will do whatever you ask me to do. Listen to this. Underline it, please. Let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me according to what? Which is whose word? God's word. And the angel departed from her. So what did she do? She took the word from God and she believed it. She said, if that's what God said, hey, man, so be it. 
I receive it. It is done. I accept it as a part of what God has for my life. And therefore, I rejoice and thank God for it. She didn't speak against it. She didn't ask for proof. She didn't say, can you explain beyond not only how this is going to happen, but give me proof that it will happen. She asked for no proof. She just said, explain how it's going to happen because I'm not married. He explained how it was going to happen. She accepted his word. So all you got to do is accept God's promise. All you got to do is accept what God said. Amen. Down further in the chapter, please, to verse 45. Verse 45, here she is now visiting Elizabeth. Remember what happens when she shows up? Elizabeth's pregnant with John, right? She shows up pregnant with Jesus. What happens the minute they actually meet? John leaps in in the womb of Elizabeth. Who's the first one on the planet that recognizes Jesus is here? John did. He was baptized in the Holy Ghost that very moment, as the Bible said he would be. Be prepared to do his ministry. Verse 45, blessed is she, Zach, uh, literally Elizabeth said to, uh, to uh, Mary here, blessed is she who did what? Believe. Believe. Listen, there, notice this, for there will be, yes. come on, there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. How many of you know that what God has promised you in the word, he can fulfill? Amen. So what's the key for me and you to learn out of this first chapter? Don't be like Zacharias, you be like Mary. Take God at his word. Come on. Take God at his word. Not only take God at his word and his promises, but do what? Speak them. Don't do what? Speak contrary. Don't speak contrary to God's word. I hear so many people speak contrary to God's word. I'm like, God, could we not go back to the time of Zacharias? Could you not just shut their mouth up so they quit cursing their life and hurting their life? The problem is God's not going to initiate things like this in our life context to what his promises are for us because they're already ours through Jesus Christ. This he has to do because John has to be born. You have the right to walk in every promise God has for you if you just take him at his word. It's that simple. Take God at his word, he'll fulfill it. Any amens on that? So now we're going to chapter 2 because, of course, now we have the time of which John is born. You have a prophecy here in verse 67 of chapter 1 that begins in verse 68. As Zacharias, of course, mouth opened after John's birth, he then prophesies over his son all that he will do to prepare the way for Jesus. So moving on to chapter 2. I know there's a lot of verses, but... To walk through this, I mean, we're trying to cut down to as few as we can go through. So now Jesus gets born. Say, thank you, Lord. Lord. Jesus gets born. Down here in chapter 2, verse 6. So it was that while they, her and Joseph, while they were there in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no no room for them where? Now, you know, we kind of think about that today. So the Holiday Inn was full, right? right? But actually, they didn't have those type of inns in that day. What they actually had initially, for the most part, when you traveled, people in their day, especially if you were of the Jewish nation, people in their day were very open to help one another. And so most people, when they traveled, would just find lodging with others that they knew or met in their actual home, wherever they went. But over time, of course, you know, they realize there's going to be a need for a place for people to stay. So over time in different cities, this is proven through history of the history of the time of uh, Jerusalem area, throughout that time frame in which they lived, there would be people that would build actually one room type of, of buildings where travelers could stay when they needed to 
It wasn't like somebody there and they take your money and all this kind of stuff. It's just a place to stay. So when they get there at the time, obviously she's now going into labor, into Bethlehem. They go to one of these actual buildings and it's already full. There's nowhere to put her. So the phrase here that talks about in relationship to her, uh, verse 7, bringing forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swollen clothes and laid him in what? Laid him in what? You know what the phrase is there? The phrase is a stable. They're in the stable. Yes, he was put probably in the manger where the feed trough was. I know there's a lot of different people talk about the stone feed trough and all that. There's no proof of that, and that's not really significant. Here's what's significant. He didn't come with any pomp or circumstance. He came for every single person on the planet, no matter who you were. He came to die for us and pay the price for our sin. Aren't you glad? So a lot of this kind of gets put into our time, fr- time frame. We're thinking that there's all these inns where people are renting rooms and so, et cetera. Most of that wasn't going on in that day. But God's just simply showing, I'm going to bring forth my son, and he is going to be for everybody the salvation that's needed. Amen? Amen? So Jesus is born. You come on down through the chapter, of course. What happens right after that? The angel appears to the shepherds that are out actually feeding their flocks at night. Now, I think this is always interesting, and I don't want to take a lot of time here. But after Jesus' birth, who is the first people that God sends angels to reveal the birth of the Savior to? Shepherds. 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 Why? God doesn't do anything in the Bible without significance. Once you're born again, guess what's the first thing you need? You need a shepherd. You don't need a church. See, the the modern context of the mindset of most Christians is I need a church. No, you are the church. If you look up the phrase that refers to the church in the Bible, it's the called out ones. Called out from the world. We're now part of God's family. I know we call this church. We do it because most people equate it to that. But the truth is, guess what? They didn't go try to find a church building with people in it. They went and found shepherds. You know why they had to go find shepherds? Guess who Jesus is going to give us a gift of for our life? Shepherds. So literally the first thing you need after receiving revelation that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior is you need that gift of a shepherd because he's the one that's going to help you walk with God and get to know God. That's why we say all the time, biblically, it's absolutely clear. Do I need a church? No, you are the church. You need a shepherd. Amen. Because if you're just looking for a church, you know what you're looking for? Something that fits your liking. Does it have the kids ministries I want? Does it have the facilities I want? Does it have this? Does it have that? You know, think about how many people go to church today just based on facilities. Well, if that's true, they'd have never seen Jesus. Right? If you knew the Savior was going to be birthed, you wouldn't be looking for a stable, would you? I said, would you? No, you're looking for like a really nice mansion or somewhere big, you know. But that's that's the thing people don't understand. It ain't about the building. It's about the people in the building. How many know what you guys did yesterday wasn't about the, the context of the building? but the people that come here and do the work of God in the building. Amen? So a little further down here in chapter 2, we're going to go to verse 46. So clearly Jesus is born. They take him to the temple as required under the Old Testament to actually go forth before the priest and actually be dedicated to God. All that happens, really cool how he therefore had already these two people at the temple who he had spoken to, that they would get to see the Messiah before they died. Simeon was one and Anna the other one. 
that was there as well, uh, who was a widow who was there all the time praying and interceding for the people. And they both got to see the Savior. But down in verse 46, Jesus has now been birthed. He has now been on the planet walking with his family. He is now at the age of seven. Every year they had to go back to Jerusalem to offer the sacrifices required under the Old Testament. Significant now to the growing up of the birth of Jesus, we find something, uh, find a key nugget here in Luke chapter 2. So how many remember what happened here? They go to Jerusalem to take Jesus and all their family. And how many know they traveled in big bunches of people? Because obviously protection, plus a lot of them are having to go to Jerusalem, so why not travel together? Families travel together. It's like your kids out here playing together yesterday. Kids are playing, you know, doing stuff together, but they're kind of all in a big group. So they go to Jerusalem, they do what they're supposed to, annual feasts, sacrifices, etc. Now they leave. Because a lot of people say, how could this happen? I mean, think about it. You got family with you, you got friends with you, your kids are all playing together. You're still, a, you're still there as a group, right? It's almost like Home Alone 1. <laughs> it's like the first Home Alone movie, right? So, so they leave, they leave Jerusalem. They're a full day's journey, and all of a sudden, like in Home Alone, you know, Mary wakes up to the fact, something's wrong here. Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Where's he at? Nobody can find him. And all of a sudden they realize he's not with us. Now imagine the panic that would hit you as a parent. Right? Oh my gosh. So what do they got to do? We got to go back. Now they're a day's journey away. They've already gone a full day's journey. So they got to rest that night, get up. Now they got to go another full day. Two days now. Two days they've gotten back to Jerusalem. Guess what? They didn't find him instantly. Matter of fact, most scholars believe it probably took about another day. To actually find him. Because they're going to look everywhere. Where are you going to look for a seven-year-old boy? Can I tell you where you're probably not going to go first? You're not going to go to the temple. You listening? You're not going to go to the temple. To find a seven-year-old boy? You kidding me? That's not where you're going to go first. So they're searching everywhere trying to find him. And you know, probably at some point, Joseph said, You know what? We've kind of looked everywhere else. Let's go to the temple. And so they did. And lo and behold, they find him. Verse 46, chapter 2. So it was that after three days... Three days. They now find him where? In the temple. temple, God's house. What was he doing there? He was sitting in the midst of the teachers. Because believe it or not, even though a lot of these we think of, a lot of these were, you know, people who were clearly caught up in themselves, yet many were very honest and sincere in their service to God. Many of them were. Many of them loved God dearly. Paul, who persecuted the church, loved God dearly. When he got revelation of Jesus... Right? That he was the Messiah, the Savior. He freely accepted him. Without a doubt. So he's there learning from, think about this. The Son of God is learning from those who were anointed by God as ministers to, to actually teach the people. So he is sitting in the midst of the teachers. Listen, both listening to them and doing what? Asking, Asking questions. Learning things from them about obviously what they know as it relates to walking in relationship to God, etc. And this is the Son of God himself. Verse 47 says, and all who heard him were astonished. They were completely astonished his understanding of the scriptures and his answers. 48, so when they saw him, his parents, they were what? Amazed. What were they? Why were they amazed? Why were they amazed? Practical thinking. Think practical. Where are you not going to look for for a little boy seven years old? Not in the temple. What do you, do? What do you think you're going to find your boy doing? You're not going to think you're going to find him there asking questions of the religious leaders of the day. Right? You're going to probably find him pitching rocks over in a pond, on a pond in a pool somewhere or something, right? Or, or down where the marketplace is trying to snatch some food from somebody or something, you know. Got to be hungry. 
So they're amazed because this is not where they expected to find him. So realize at this point, you know, after having the baby, now actually raising him for seven years, how many know Mary and Joseph have kind of drifted into what we call the sin of familiarity? Think about this. They, she, they know he's the son of God. They, they were told, both him and Joseph were told. Both her and, excuse me, her and Joseph were told, right? But now it's just kind of like he's just our son Jesus. And so they're amazed that he's at the temple. They're totally amazed that he's there. Notice this, verse 48. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. Did he do it to him? Who was the parents here? Come on, who were the parents here? Who were the parents? This is not a question. Who were the parents here? Joseph and Elizabeth. Uh, Joseph and Mary. Who was responsible for making sure he was with them? Joseph and Mary. Not Jesus. But they're saying, why did you do this to us? 49, I want you to listen carefully. Jesus answered and he said, why did you seek me? What do you mean, why did you seek me? It's not like, you know, hey, just leave me alone. I'm just going to grow up by myself now and do my God thing, you know, on the planet. No, he's literally saying, in context to why do you seek me, why did you not come here first? Why did you not know I would be here? Do you know I'm the son of God? Don't you remember what was prophesied to you? Look what he says. Did you not know? Come on, somebody. Did you not know that I, underline it, must be about my... They should have known. They should have not forgotten the prophecies. Now, a couple things I'll point out about this. You know, when God gives you, again, promises or things you know is true, why would you get to a place where you ever start questioning them? If you know what God said, then you know what God said is truth, right? Don't question it. Don't ever question it. God told him who he was. He should never forget it, never question it. But notice the second key part I want to point out. What did Jesus say I must be about? My father's business. So now as we go further into the story from here until Christmas Day, we're going to start looking at Jesus' example to us. So here's an example for us. Are you a follower of Jesus? That's three of you in the room. Are you born again? How many know you're supposed to be a follower of Jesus? Walk in his footsteps. Greatest way to live life. No better way. How many would like to walk in the best life you could live? So you have a choice. Walk in yours or God's. Which one you want? Why would you not want to do things God's way? So what was his focus? I've got to be about my father's business. So let's think about that practically for a minute. What do you mean be about my father's business? Well, the first thing we would think of, of course, maybe many of us, is witnessing to to others about the gospel. We should. That should be a priority in our mind. We should be willing to share about our salvation. Well, I just don't know how to do that. You ever gone to a restaurant you like? Raise your hand if you ever gone to a restaurant you like. You ever told somebody else about that restaurant? Raise your hand. If you didn't, you were selfish. But guess what? Have you ever been born again and experienced that you've tasted and seen the Lord is good? I mean, oh, the Lord is good. Share him. Hey, man, I found something really good in life. His name is Jesus. Let me tell you about him. See, people think this witnessing thing has to be, I got to understand every scripture and be this great theologian. No, you don't. Share your story. Just share your story. That's all he asked the disciples to do. Just go share your story. Go talk about how I've touched your life, how I've helped you. That's all you got to do. So literally, you got to understand, yes, witnessing is a part of being about the Father's business. But how about this? How about coming and being equipped with the Word of God? What was he doing? He was sitting there being equipped with the Word of God. He, the Son of God, was being taught the Word of God. That's part of the Father's business. So in other words, why are you shocked that I'm here, he's saying? Why, here's how we'd say it today. You're shocked because you found me in church? Excuse me. I got to be about the Father's business, and I got to go get equipped to do that. 
I got to continually be equipped to do that. Amen. Amen. What about being a godly husband or godly wife? The moment you marry, you take on the responsibility to be a godly husband or a godly wife. So now that's called the father's business. Because if you do it the way God said, you're being about the father's. See, a lot of this practical stuff we don't think about when we think about being about the father's business. What about being a godly mom or dad? You have children. God wants you to raise them the way he tells you in scripture. Right? Gives you direction how to do that. Gives you help. How many glad parents glad God gives you help in the Bible how to do that? So realize that if I do that according to the scriptures, what am I doing? I'm about my... See, a lot of times, you know, especially moms that stay home and raise their kids. Well, I'm not about the father's business. I'm home taking care of my kids. Are you kidding me? What are you pouring into those kids? Are you pouring Jesus into them? Are you pouring God's love into them? Are you raising the way God said? If you are, guess what you're doing? You're about the... See, you got to realize that all this has to do with being about the Father's business. I say it all the time, but sometimes Christians get too, quote-unquote, religiously minded to just think practically according to the Scripture. Jesus said, if you'll become like a little child, you can understand this stuff. Now, if a little kid can understand it, come on, somebody. Tell your neighbor you should be able to. So think practically. What does it mean to be about the Father's business? Okay, stay away from things God says clearly they're going to hurt your life that you shouldn't be a part of. Do what you should do as a husband or wife, a mom or a dad. Do what you should do as a believer walking with Jesus, just like Jesus would do. Follow his example. And you can be about what? The Father's business. Okay, we're going to move on to chapter 3. You still with me? So here we have John now. Now we have John beginning to proclaim, beginning to declare The way of the Lord. He's obviously at that age now where he is going to start declaring the name of the Lord. Jesus, therefore, is around 30 years of age. Because Jesus started his earthly ministry around 30. He only did it for about three, three and a half years. And then went to heaven. So we have John the Baptist doing what? Preparing the way for Jesus. And as John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus, we literally find out in relationship to what actually he is to do. His first great act in relationship to Jesus of helping people to know him as he's going to water baptize Jesus. Jesus comes to John. John has been there water baptizing people. And here comes Jesus to where John is water baptizing for him to water baptize him in the river Jordan. Verse 16, John answered saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water. Listen to this. But one mightier than I is coming whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. Underline this please. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and with fire. So John's saying, I've been sent to baptize you with water to help you understand a commitment to God, a preparation to God to receive Jesus, to submit your life to him. What did water baptism represent? still does. It does represent a public display of commitment to God, but practical sense. What, is it, what does it display? We call it this all the time, a watery grave. It's a watery grave. You go into the water, right, as a sinner. Now, this doesn't happen just because you get water baptized, but it represents. So if you're born again, you're to be water baptized. You go under the water recognizing, as Chef said in acknowledgement publicly, as Chef said, I go under that water recognizing what? Watery grave. I go down under that watery grave because we're not going to put you in the earth and bury you and then dig you back up. Aren't you glad? So what God says is you need to acknowledge, though, that old man's dead. So that watery grave, you go under the water, you come up, it's like coming up out of a grave. And you come up a new man. 
But notice what John said. I have baptized you with water to remind you of this change of lifestyle. But notice what he said about Jesus. Again, the very last part of verse 16. I'm not worthy to loose the sandal strap he wears. But listen, he will baptize you with what? Tell me out loud, please. Jesus is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Like it or not, believe it or not, agree with it or not, guess what? Every believer, God wants baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's a different experience from salvation. All right? Us tongue talkers are not wacko weirdos, crazy people. There might be some out there that aren't obeying God. But if you think everybody that's spoken tongues, which is the evidence that you've been submissive and subjected to this baptism, this immersion... All that happens is when you're born again, real simple. All, I love this simple example analogy I heard years ago by a minister, greatest one I could tell you. You know, take a, you take a bottle of water, right? So if you take a bottle of water, I'm a sinner, right? I keep getting told about salvation as a type of water, Holy Spirit. I get, keep told, being told I can be born again, have the Holy Spirit come live in me, be washed, cleansed of my sin, made brand new, right? So I hear that message. That's like me taking a bottle of water. Here's the message. I take it and I drink it. What happens? The water gets in me. What does it do? Cleanses my spirit, man. He's gone, and a brand new spirit comes alive. Say, that's salvation. So that's me and you putting our faith in Jesus to be born again. Where is that water now? Where is that water now? It's inside me, which represents the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's the one that comes in me to cleanse me of my sin, make me brand new. Correct? Am I done as far as my walk with God? Nope. John the Baptist just said right there, he said, what? So I baptize you with water to remind you of this inward change, but he's coming to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So what's the word baptize mean? The word baptize actually means to be immersed in, to be immersed in. So you and I understand clearly we're to be immersed in water, not sprinkled, but we're all supposed to be what? Immersed in the Holy Spirit. So who is it that does this in our life? Jesus does. So the Holy Spirit's in you. Remember what Jesus told him before he sent it to heaven in Acts chapter 1? He said, I'm leaving. But the Holy Spirit, who actually was already in him, because in John 20, he'd already breathed on him, said, receive the Holy Spirit. He's now going to come what? Up on you. Guess what God wants? He wants the Holy Spirit to be upon you. Not just in you. He wants him to empower you to live a life as a witness for Jesus. So every believer should be what? Baptized in the Holy Spirit. And when we get yielded to the Holy Spirit, He now has the ability to use our tongue through our spirit to speak words through us. Powerful. Powerful. Everybody that comes against speaking in tongues does not understand the incredible gift God gave you of learning His language. You don't learn it in your brain. Your spirit's praying. How about this? When you pray in the Holy Spirit, you build yourself up on your most holy faith. How many have a car outside? Raise your hand if you've got a car outside if you came in one. If you didn't, I guess you rode your horse. <laughs> Becky? You came across. Okay, Becky sure didn't. They don't live too far. I thought maybe she could rode a horse one. So if you have a car outside, guess what? Before you leave here today, you're going to be grateful for a little element inside that car called an alternator. Because without that alternator, that battery doesn't get charged. Without the power in that battery, you have no ability to start your car, go where you need to go. The Bible tells us we have the power of the Holy Spirit. But how many know we need to recharge our spiritual batteries so that we have the power of God with us wherever we go? You know how you do that? Speaking in tongues. The Bible says when you pray in that heavenly language, you are building yourselves up on your most holy faith, edifying yourself spiritually. 
Well, I don't understand that. We got books. We'll help you understand it. Little teachings on it, etc. But John said it. John said, now I baptize you with water, but guess what Jesus is going to do? He wants to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, representing the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Did that happen? Did that, did that verse get fulfilled in the disciples' lives? When? Day of Pentecost. Were they already born again? Yes, they were. John 20, Jesus hadn't left the planet yet. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. They got born again. Then he's about to ascend to heaven. He said, go to Jerusalem. Wait for the promise of the Father. At which time you'll become my witnesses. What happened on the day of Pentecost? What did they see? They saw tongues of fire on every one of them. Amen. Not like an actual fire burning on them, but like representative of the Holy Spirit. They all saw it. They all saw exactly this verse fulfilled. And they were what? Empowered to be witnesses for Jesus. Any amens on that? If you go down a little further to verse 21 of the same chapter, verse 21, so Jesus baptized, uh, John baptizes Jesus for this very same thing. He's our example. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass. Jesus also was baptized while he prayed. Heaven was open. Say heaven was open. Notice this. The Holy Spirit did what? He descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. Where? Upon him. Does he need to be born again? No. No. Does he need to be baptized for the remission of sin? No, he has no sin in him. What's happening here? He's being baptized. He's being immersed in the Spirit to do what? Now go do his earthly ministry. Guess what you need? Same power. Same power. He hadn't done a miracle till after this. He hadn't done a single thing till after this. How many know the Bible says you're to go into all the world? Share the good news. Wait a minute. Lay hands on the sick. They're going to do what? How? Same power. Same power. This is why a lot of people don't understand why Satan fights against us so much. Because guess what he don't want you to do? Healing people. He don't want you delivering people. So Jesus himself then coming gets water baptized. 22. Holy Spirit descends upon him in a bodily form like a dove. And a voice comes from heaven saying, notice this. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. 23. Jesus himself began his ministry then after that. At about 30 years of age, because it was supposed he was the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, and on through all the listings all the way back. So understand this very clearly. Jesus could do no miracles, no, no power was operating his life until this happened in which he got baptized in the Holy Spirit. Acts 10.38 says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. Anointed. Anoint means to smear on, rub on. How he anointed him with the Holy Spirit and power. And he went about doing what? Bad. Good. Hurting everybody, knocking everybody down. Now he went about doing what? Good. Good. And healing all. all who were pressed to the devil. And Jesus told you to do the same thing. Amen. Can't do that without the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Without yielding to the Holy Spirit where he comes upon you. And Jesus will do what? He'll immerse you in the presence of God. Amen. All right. Luke 4. Come on. We're almost done. Luke 4. Lunch cometh. Praise the Lord. Luke 4 verse 1, notice this. Now Jesus himself being anointed of the Holy Spirit, right after he was baptized in the Holy Spirit, where, where did he go? He went in the wilderness, right? 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted of Satan after that 40 days. Now I've been there. I went to Israel. I've seen this wilderness. I'm telling you, you don't know wilderness until you've been in the wilderness in the area that we were actually in east of Jerusalem. There ain't a thing that grows out there. It looks like rock everything. Total, complete desert. I mean, just absolute, complete deadness everywhere you look. And the most eerie silence. Unbelievable. 
I mean, they took us up in an area of the wilderness that most people don't get to go. Pastor has clearance through military out in this area, which actually is normally kind of perimetered and, uh, you know, protected against. And we got to, they just let us individually. They said, take some time, pick out a spot, and just go sit down for a while. And see what Jesus sat through for 40 days and 40 nights. And we did. And it was the most un excribable, undisplainable, I don't know how to describe this experience of sitting there by yourself in almost eerily total silence, just deadness, nothing around you, nothing living, nothing alive. But that's when he went out through 40, year, uh, 40 days and 40 nights. Now, at the end of that temptation, he was, at the end of that excuse me, time in the wilderness, he was tempted by the devil. Verse 1 of chapter 4, Jesus being what again? Filled. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted 40 days by the devil. And in those days, he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended the 40 days, he was hungry. How many think you'd be hungry after 40 days not eating? Some of you are already hungry and you haven't had anything other than just breakfast this morning. You're already wanting lunch. Praise the Lord. Verse 3, the devil said to him, underline it, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, saying to him, it is written. Underline those three words, please. Yeah. It is written. And what did he do? Quoted scripture. Who did this? Son of God did. What is, he being, what is he being done? What's being done to him right now? Satan's trying to tempt him. To do what? To, to not walk in the light of what God wants him to do. What does he do in response to that temptation? He says it is written and he quotes the Bible. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. By what? So the phrase here, to live, man shall not live. That means to experience the God kind of life. Man cannot experience the God kind of life without what? The Word of God. So this is key. For you and me in life, we get tempted by Satan. We get tempted to quit God. We get tempted to not believe God. We get tempted to do things we shouldn't do. On and on we could go, right? Jesus, who's your model? Say, he's my model. So what did Jesus do to overcome every temptation? When you're tempted to get frustrated with somebody, when you're tempted to get angry at somebody... Come on, someone. Whatever you're tempted to do, Satan's trying to get you out of the will of God. How do you overcome those temptations? Same way Jesus did. What did Jesus do? He quoted the Word of God. Why? Why did he quote the Word of God? Ephesians 6, you have armor. God gave you armor. Aren't you glad? What's part of that armor? The sword of the... Which is the... Word of God. It's not sword unless you speak it. So how do you overcome Satan's temptations? you got to speak the word. Most Christians don't overcome challenging temptations in life because they don't do what Jesus did. you got to speak the word. When you're tempted to get fearful, what do you need to do? Speak the word. What's a good verse for those who are tempted to be fearful? 2 Timothy 1.7 God has not given me a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. Yeah, but I get tempted over and over again in that. Well, guess what? You keep pulling the sword out, and the devil's going to say, enough of this. See, most Christians don't overcome because they don't do what Jesus did. They get tempted in all kinds of ways, but they don't do what he did. He took the Word of God all three times tempted. He took the Word of God, and he spoke back with the Word of God. Now, if Jesus had to do that to overcome temptation, you going to do it some other way? It's so funny how we want to actually live life different than the way Jesus lived it and get the same results. No, you follow his example. He showed you how to do it. Are you still here? He showed you how to do it. You don't even have to try to figure it out. Just do what he showed you how to do. 
Going down, Luke chapter 4, a little further. You still with me? Luke chapter 4. Come on, we're almost done. A couple more verses. I'm going to show you that Jesus went to church. What we say about going to church. I'm going to show you that he did. We already know at age 7 he's at the temple. Look at verse 16. Luke 4, 16. How many think Jesus is a good model to follow? So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, underline it, and as his custom was. What's custom? He did it all the time. Not once in a while. As his custom was. What did he do? Tell me what he did. Synagogue Synagogue was the house of God in their day. He went into the synagogue on what? The Sabbath day and he stood up to read. When is the Sabbath day still? It is a Saturday. Do we worship on the Sabbath today? We don't. Under the New Testament, you know what the Bible tells us we do? We now have the first day of the week, Sunday, set aside as the Lord's day. What are we supposed to do on the Lord's day? We're supposed to come to God's house like Jesus. Right? We follow his example. A little further down, please. See, we didn't make this up. God said this was for you. A little further down. We're going to go down to verse 40, and we're going to begin to see Jesus now doing the work of the Father and why he's here. Verse 40. When the sun was setting, all those who had any, say any, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases, they brought, it, they brought them to Jesus, brought them to him. Notice what he did. He laid hands on every one of them and did what? Them. How many did he heal? All that came, and all through the Gospels, we can see all that came who believed he could do it. Amen. How many believe God still can do it? Amen. So if you come to a believer, believe God. The believer's not going to do it. The believer through God, just like Jesus can do it. Amen. So this clearly proves to us what? Jesus came not to heal some. Jesus came to heal what? Last verse for today. You made it. Come on. Verse 43. Luke 4, 43. This is powerful. Look at this. Jesus speaking here. Let's back up to verse 42 to get the context. Now, when it was day, he departed. He went to a deserted place, spent some time alone with the Father. The crowd sought him, and they came to him, and they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must do what? What must I do? Preach the kingdom of God to other cities also. Underline it because, notice, for this purpose, I have been sent. I thought it was here to preach the good news. That's the kingdom. What's the good news? You ready for this? Here's the good news. So Jesus even told his disciples this. Jesus said, everywhere you go, what do you tell them to do? You go tell everybody the kingdom of God is at hand. You know what that means? It's here. It's now available, right? You can now, in essence, as an individual, you can now function under the dominion of the king. There's two dominions here. There's the dominion of darkness and there's the dominion of God. Now, at the very beginning of the creation of earth, the dominion of darkness was not here. When Adam and Eve sinned and gave over to what was obviously Satan's temptation, what actually happened? We had a shift in this earth. Because now the very authority of God's kingdom that was given to Adam was now actually given over to Satan. And Satan was now allowed access to have dominion in this earth to affect people's lives. Right? If they allowed him, he he could affect people's lives because he was given that access to their life through sin. But until Jesus came, the dominion of God's king, Jesus, could not affect every individual's life because of the fall. But Jesus coming back said, guess what I'm bringing? Guess what's now at hand? Guess what's now available to every believer? The dominion of the king. 
Meaning you can have the dominion, the rule of Jesus over your life in every way so that Satan can't take advantage of your life. That's good news. That's good news. So literally what Jesus tells us at the end here of Luke chapter 4, I have to go and make it known to all people that the kingdom of God, the dominion of the king is now back. And you can have it. You can walk in that dominion. How many know you have authority to trample on serpents and scorpions? Power of darkness. You couldn't do that without Jesus coming back. But thank God we can. And that's what you and I need to go proclaim to others. God's dominion is here. You might be be affected by this fall and this sin of man and all that's going on with Satan. But guess what? That can change. That can change because the kingdom is now available. All you got to do is become a child of the king and learn your rightful place of authority. And use that dominion. How do you release that dominion? How do you release that dominion? How do you release the authority, the dominion? Name of Jesus. Name above every name. Amen? So thank God we can now establish that kingdom everywhere we go. Did you learn anything today? So remember this. Jesus came for the express purpose of helping us to be able to walk in the light of that kingdom and to make that kingdom known. We pray that you are blessed by the message Pastor Baker shared with you today. For more spiritual resources that can help you in your walk with God, or to invite Pastor Baker as a guest speaker, just go to our website at cffchurch.com. You will find additional teachings by video, audio, and printed resources that will be a blessing to you. May God's very best be yours.